Well, obviously, today my heart is filled with burden and angst for this country and for our nation and for the state of the church in America. And I want to just encourage you with a few thoughts. And in order to do that, I wanted us to turn very quickly so that I don't preach two sermons to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John, beginning in, in chapter 2, this is the word that I want to remind us of as we think about this going forward in terms of what has transpired in our culture, in our generation. The Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John, excuse me, says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. I don't think there could be a more pertinent passage for us to be reminded of. In terms of our eschatology, and here I am not thinking of the timing of the rapture, here I am not thinking of the nature of the millennium, here I am not thinking about the second coming, but in terms of biblical eschatology, what the Apostle John is telling us is that the age to come has already inaugurated in this present evil age what he calls the passing away of the world. That is to say that through Jesus and through his ministry, his ministry, through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection to the right hand of God the Father, the result of that is that the age to come has already penetrated into this time, into this age, into our lives, into this world, so that what we're seeing now is the fading away of the old world. It's very important for us to understand what John is saying here when he says, do not love the world. Well, in one sense, we can say we love the world. I love this world in the sense that I look up at the sky and I look at the beautiful sun. I'm driving here to church today and I look across nice, beautiful blue sky, puffy white clouds, and I see the fields and I think this is a beautiful world. But that is not at all what the Apostle John has in mind. When he says cosmos in this context, what he means is, we were talking about this in Sunday school, what he's talking about is the present evil age, the present order of things, the present system of morality, philosophy, spirituality, the present system of fallen man and all that it comprises. What he is saying is, do not love that world because that world, the form of this world is passing away. The order, the system, the governments, the values, the morality, the humanistic age in which we live, brothers and sisters, is falling away and taking it with that fall as it's fading away, going with it is all of its lusts, all of its evil epithumia, impulses to do evil. All of that is fading away and therefore... He says, the boastful pride of life. That is exactly what we saw this week going forward in this country. The boastful pride of life. This is exactly what the Tower of Babel was all about. The boastful pride of life. Man making a name for himself in this post-Genesis 3 world and thinking that they will prosper and sin with impunity. And that is precisely what the Bible rejects. I think now that what has transpired in our nation, in our country, I think now more than ever, Christians are going to be uh, brought up sharp 
on the reality that, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that the Christian worldview is in direct antithesis to any other worldview, that our worldview is in direct opposition to the evil system of this world. They cannot coexist. They cannot coincide. They are not the same. We cannot live in harmony with the direction and the course of this age. This is why Jesus said that tribulation and trouble is promised for you. This is why Paul says, if you seek to be godly, you will suffer persecution. The antithesis is there not, by, not so much by man's doing, but by God's doing. You remember in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, God subjected the world to futility. Why? In hope. In hope of what? The redemption of the sons of God. In other words, why is this hostility there? Why does this antithesis exist? Because God is redeeming a people for Himself. And He is bringing that redemption about by the rising and falling of kingdoms and nations and powers. And all the while, God is creating for Himself a new humanity in Christ Jesus, a spiritual kingdom, a new race, a new nation, a new people, the family of God. And so now, the onus is on us, Christians, to think deeper, to be more sober, to be more faithful than ever before, to be more convicted about the truth, to be more settled in our heart about our confession of faith. Everything that the book of Hebrews is telling us to do. To not move, to hold fast, to not waver, to not doubt. Nothing else is going to sustain us in the evil day. Nothing. And that's why we come to the book of Hebrews with great anticipation because we know that what Hebrews is teaching us is for our endurance. That's what the whole letter of Hebrews is designed to produce, greater perseverance in the midst of evil, in the midst of suffering. As it says in Hebrews chapter 2, if the, the, the captain of our salvation, if he was perfected through suffering, well, how much more will the children that God is going to bring to glory, how much more will he not perfect us in suffering? The same thing. Remember what Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his master. If they hated him, they will hate us. And Jesus says, remember that I told you ahead of time so that when it happens, you will not forget that I told you, right? When the world, like the men of Sodom, are blindly chasing after in the greediest fashion imaginable, unthinkable immorality, and they cannot comprehend why you do not, not only understand, but agree and celebrate the pursuit of evil. We, in one sense, I'm very excited about where we are as a country because now through the, through, the, through, the, uh, through the crucible of persecution, the church is going to be manifested as to the legitimacy of people's faith or the inauthenticity of your faith. I tell you what, if you're coming to Heritage Grace and you're just here, and you're just among us, and you really truly are not doing business with God, now is the time. You can't fake the funk anymore. You need to settle it in your heart. Are you in or are you out? Jesus said, you are either for me or you are against me. There is no neutral ground. If you deny me in the presence of people, I will deny you in the presence of my Father and the holy angels. We are in the valley of decision. It is time to make your conviction clear. 
And so in that sense, I am excited that persecution in America, because it is coming, and it's already here, folks, it's already here. Just ask the Christian baker that had their business closed down and that is being fined thousands of dollars. You'll feel the weight of persecution if you had that, if you had that business and if your livelihood and if the food on the table of your children is being threatened, you will, you will feel yourself persecuted. And so persecution is going to produce precisely what persecution has always produced in the history of the church, and that is purity. Purity. And so I'm looking forward to that. But today, I'm going to continue to do what I believe that God has called us to do, uh, even in the midst of tumultuous times such as these, which is to preach the Word, right? Paul didn't tell the Apostle Timothy, or Paul didn't, Apostle Paul didn't tell Timothy, Timothy, when persecution comes, panic. When persecution comes, stop everything and think of something new to do. Now, when times get hard more than ever, Timothy, be committed to preach the Word in season and out of season. That means when it is convenient and when it is no longer a convenient, popular, popular, hip, cool, trendy thing to do to be Christian. Preach the Word in season and out. Let me pray, and we'll begin with Hebrews 7. Father, so we pray for our nation. Our hearts are heavy, but more than anything, Lord, we pray for your nation. We pray for the people of God, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray especially, therefore, for the household of faith, that you would guard your people, protect your people, that you would give your people in these last days wisdom and understanding, discernment like the men of Issachar, to discern the times to be able to know how to speak to a country that has lost its way, to be able to know how to speak to each person that we meet on the street, at home, at school, at the workplace, to be able to speak with seasoned salt. Help us, therefore, to be light and salt in this culture. Lord, help us to see the great privilege that we have in Jesus Christ, our hope to see Him as our hope, to see Him in all of His wonder, in all of His work, to value Him, to treasure Him now more than ever so that we would not be shaken. We pray all these things now. We pray Your help now, a blessing now over both the speaker and the hearer of Your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, Melchizedek. What in the world does Melchizedek have to do with you? <laughs> right? People are like, Melchizedek, huh? Melchizedek, what? One of the reasons why Melchizedek is so mysterious to us is because he only appears a few times in Scripture. We find him in Genesis 14. That's, the t- that's when he's mentioned. We also find a reference to him in Psalm 110. And then we have this reference right here in Hebrews chapter 7. That is it. It doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture, and yet the argument of Hebrews on a mass scale hinges upon whether or not we understand Melchizedek. I think that's incredible that so much of the argument of Hebrews hangs Christologically on the person Melchizedek, that we understand Melchizedek, that we grasp Melchizedek, that we learn from Melchizedek. If not, we will not understand the nature of Jesus' priestly duties. We will not understand the nature of Jesus' intercessory work for us. This is why it matters to the author of Hebrews that we understand that even though up to this point the priesthood For the people of God has consisted of that which originated with Levi. And even going back, Aaron and Zadok, that the Levitical priesthood that they they grew up with their entire life, understanding this is the priest. When you go to the temple, you see the priest. There's the high priest. We know what he does. And the other priests and the Levitical priesthood that would minister to them their whole lives, that they would grow up with knowing these priests being ministered by the priests. And now, in comes a superior priesthood to replace all of that. To replace all of that. 
Melchizedek being a type of Christ tells us several things about the character and person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why it is so important that we understand Melchizedek. And lastly, Melchizedek holds an incredible theological weight for the argument of Jesus' priesthood, and it's this, that what we have in the priesthood of Melchizedek is the assertion that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is connected organically to the, to the Word of God, to the Old Testament Scriptures, that the priesthood of Jesus is not an idea that originated out of thin air, but that it has its foundations back into redemptive history and in the redemptive Scriptures themselves, that this is the outworking of God's plan magnificently, mysteriously, profoundly, Christologically. This is God's plan working itself out in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now the author is emphasizing this is all rooted in the Bible. This is not just the author of Hebrews theologizing on his own. No, 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 no. He has a rational, biblical theological, scriptural argument, argument that he's making. And so, I want to look at three things. Number one, I want to look at the historical setting. So to do that, put your finger at Genesis 14, Genesis chapter 14, because there we know historically this goes back to Genesis 14. The issue of the Melchizedekian priesthood is answering the question of Hebrews chapter 6 verse 20. You remember at least the assertion that is being made there? Jesus has entered through the veil as a forerunner for us, watch this, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And to prove that, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis chapter 14, Hebrews tells us this. I'm reading, Gen- uh, I'm reading Hebrews 7.1 with your finger in Genesis. Hebrews 7.1 says, For this Melchizedek... Now, that's important. You see that? Verse 1 of chapter 7 begins with the word for. And that is what's known as uh, explanatory gar, the, the Greek word gar for for. In other words, it's a connection. It's a connection. He, chapter 6 He is a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, for. You see, the original documents of the New Testament have no chapters, and it has no verses. They read straight through. And add to that the fact that the whole book of Hebrews is probably an ancient homily, which means that someone would have stood in the midst of the, of, the, of the first century church and would have read the book of Hebrews from beginning to end as a sermon. As a sermon. And by the way, for those of you that want to preach sermons that you feel called to the ministry, take a, um, you know, take a note here from Hebrews that um, uh, the nature of this ancient sermon has nothing to do with fun and games. It has nothing to do with excessive storytelling. It has nothing to do about the pastor. You notice he's not preaching himself. A lot of pastors would learn quite a bit by the pastor of Hebrews that his sermon is not about himself and his own personal idiosyncrasies. There are a lot of sermons that you listen to today where you're, you're left wondering where in the world is Christ? I heard a lot about you. I heard a lot about what the church is doing. I heard a lot about the finances. I heard a lot about culture. Where is Jesus Christ? Well, this ancient sermon helps to show us that, that, that the duty of every Christian preacher is to preach Christ to exalt Christ. I remember I attended an old, um, I attended a, um, a ceremony at a Hispanic church 
where they were ordaining men to the ministry. And this old man stood up to give the exhortation. He could barely walk. He needed help up to the podium. And when he got to the podium, I sat there not knowing what to expect. And he spoke in Spanish. Thank goodness I speak in Spanish. I can understand what he was saying. I don't speak it that well, but I can understand what he was saying. And he rose up in that pulpit and he said in Spanish, men, we are called to preach Christ. And that just resonated so deep within me because it eliminates all these other things. Don't preach yourself. Don't preach about your church. Don't preach about the culture. Don't preach about politics. Don't preach about philosophy. Preach Christ. And that's what the author of Hebrews has been doing through and through and through, taking us deeper and deeper and deeper into the person and work of Jesus Christ. If a sermon is ever preached that does not terminate on the person and work of Jesus Christ, scratch the sermon, delete the audio file, and do it over again. Because our duty is to preach Jesus Christ preeminent from any scripture that you're at. Spurgeon said that very thing. He says, I don't care where I am in the word of God. He says, just like every road and inlet goes back to London. He says, I don't care where, where, where in scripture I am. I am going to make a way. I'm going to get into a hedge. I'm going to go down a path, a road somewhere. I will get to the citadel that is Jesus Christ. Because everything, everything has to do with him. And is this not just more authentication of that very point? we got to go back to Genesis 14 to unlock the interpretation of Hebrews. I love it. And so after Hebrews says, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him. That's the emphasis. He blessed him. And now Genesis adds its own detail. Genesis 14, 17. After this, excuse me, after his return, that is Abraham, from the defeat of Kidor Loamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. Phenomenal. And as quick as Melchizedek comes on the scene, that quickly he vanishes from the pages of Scripture. And we'll get, but we'll get to that. So after Abraham goes to war with four Canaanite kings who had invaded neighboring cities and abducted several people, including his nephew Lot, Abraham mounts an attack, goes after these kings, defeats them, and then comes back to Sheveh in the valley of the kings and is met by two people. He is met by the king of Sodom, but more importantly, he is met by the king the priest king, that is, Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, Melchizedek celebrates with him. He brings out bread and he brings out wine, an ancient symbol of fellowship, a symbol of celebration. In other words, he was celebrating the defeat of these kings and the conquest of Abraham. But what I want to show you is that in verse 16, Genesis 14, 16, it says, he brought back all the goods... And also brought back his relative Lot, his possessions, and also the women and the people. So imagine this. Here is Abraham with this incredible victory, bringing the spoils of war to demonstrate that victory. And it says that Melchizedek blessed him. You see what's going on here? Abraham looks really, really good. Really, really powerful and really preeminent at this point. But he comes not to an inferior. He comes to a superior. Right at the height of his own patriarchal career, if you would. Here is Abraham. Victorious, powerful, with prestige. And yet, he comes to one that blessed him. As a matter of fact, the text says in Genesis chapter 14, three different times, Melchizedek blessed, Melchizedek blessed, Melchizedek blessed. You think the author's trying to tell us something? It's exactly what we are told later 
in Hebrews chapter 7, he goes on to say that in, in verse 7, without dispute, Hebrews 7, 7, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And so he's trying to emphasize here, someone greater than Abraham has arrived on the scene in blessing Abraham as well as being a priest of God Most High, Melchizedek and Abraham share the same faith. This is an amazing, enigmatic figure for so many reasons. But look at Genesis 14, 18 again. It says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, which really El Yahweh should be translated creator of heaven and earth. Most English translations go that way. The NASB for some reason translates it possessor, but that's essentially what is being communicated here, sovereignty over heaven and earth. And then that's Melchizedek's words. That's what he said. And now look at verse 22. This is what Abraham says. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, Melchizedek and Abraham have the same confession. They believe in the same God. God most high creator of heaven and earth. They believed in the same sovereign God. They had a common faith. They had fellowship. They worshiped and served the same God. The fact that he is called the king of Salem has been taken also to mean that he, he ministered in this region of, which is really identified as ancient Jerusalem, Salem, Jerusalem. And therefore, he is definitely typological here of Jesus Christ. Jesus who also rules and reigns over not the earthly Jerusalem, folks. I've been there a couple times. I've never seen Jesus there. It's not the earthly Jerusalem that we're concerned with. It is the heavenly Jerusalem that we are concerned with. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. We have come now to the heavenly Jerusalem. I'm telling you that what Melchizedek typified as he ruled over Jerusalem in ancient primitive times is what typifies what Jesus will do, but to a much greater eschatological scale in ruling over the heavenly Jerusalem as a priest king of his people. Remarkable, remarkable that God does this. Melchizedek, he might be mysterious to us. We read this passage and we scratch our heads and we think, what gives? This guy comes out of nowhere. I mean, if you delete the narrative of these short verses, do you really miss anything? Yes, you do. You miss everything that God was doing concerning Jesus' priesthood. It is imperative that God raise up this person, this enigmatic, mysterious figure, that God raise him up and use him precisely where you find him for his redemptive purpose. He could not have come 400 years later. Melchizedek, that is. He needed to come precisely where you find him in Genesis chapter 14. God never has a... He, he, God always does everything with a reason, a purpose. Don't get that twisted ever. Don't ever think that as you're reading Scripture, you're reading anything that can be thrown away. You're never reading a throwaway verse. There's no such thing. Every detail... Every single historical event has some sort of significant meaning. It has a place in God's overall redemptive plan. God's not messing around with Melchizedek. He's stacking the deck. He's getting us ready for someone who is way more mysterious than Melchizedek. Someone Talk about not being able to trace their genealogy. You are not able to discern the origins of Jesus Christ. His days are from eternity. <laughs> but he does this also from a historical perspective because 
It is imperative, it is imperative that Melchizedek as a priest appear at this time. Why? Because he appears on the scene before Levi is born. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 7, uh, verse 9. It says here, So to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. In other words, the Jews were accustomed to paying tithes to the priest. That was a customary practice of the the Levitical code. The Levitical priests received those tithes. But in Genesis, Levi can be said to have paid tithes to Melchizedek through his father, Abraham. In other words, the author of Hebrews and really... God, in His divine wisdom, is making it crystal clear that Melchizedek's priesthood is established on a transcendent plane that cannot be disqualified or qualified according to earthly descent, national descent, physical descent. One of the things that you had to have as an earthly priest according to the line of Levi, is that they had to be able to trace your ancestry back to Levi. Well, you can't do that with Melchizedek. Why? Because Levi's not even born yet. He precedes him. He is greater than him. His priesthood is not installed because of genealogy. It is installed because of God's divine authority. Now, let's move on to the what I want to call the tithing of Abraham to Melchizedek. That is the historical setting of of Melchizedek, now the tithing of Abraham to Melchizedek. Now, we're going to handle this in large part, but remember what it says here. In chapter 7, verse 4, it says, Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. You see, in primitive times, this is very significant. Because in primitive times, for you to present a a tenth of all of your goods to someone immediately put you in a subservient role. You became inferior to that person in a good sense. They were not your inferior, you were their inferior. Melchizedek is Abraham's superior, and that's exactly what he's trying to, 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 to lay out here for us. It is imperative right now. What is imperative for us to understand from Hebrews and what it is saying is that Melchizedek's uh, priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. That is it. If you can get that, you can get uh, 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 Hebrews chapter 7. It is showing us that a superior priesthood has emerged. And it doesn't come out of thin air. It comes directly from the Word of God itself. How? How? Melchizedek. Now, we should ask, to whom does Abraham tithe? Because we're not just told that he tithed to him. We're not just told that Melchizedek was a priest, but we're also given these these qualifiers, these descriptions of who he was. Now, first, let's look at this first one. He, He first gives us the name Melchizedek, which is translated king of righteousness. So Mel comes from the Hebrew word melech, which means king, and then uh, Zedek comes from the word righteousness, Zedek, which means righteous. So he is the king of what is righteous, king of righteousness. And so, of course, what we are meant to do is to subscribe to these, uh, or to prescribe to these titles a Christological angle that shows us that there is a king of righteousness who is much greater than Melchizedek. And so here, the Old Testament Christology of the kingdom of God, the reign of the Messiah, is crucial. For example, let me read to you some of these verses. You can jot them down or just make mental notes of these. But Psalm 72, verse 1, "'Give to the king your judgments, O God.'" He says, your righteousness, give to the king your righteousness and to the king's son. Isn't that remarkable? What David is saying there is 
There is a son of the king to whom God will give his righteousness. The righteousness of God par excellence in the messianic son of David. Also, Psalm 72, verse 7, in his days, that is the Messiah, they will, they, the righteousness will flourish an abundance of peace until the moon is no more. What an amazing verse. Infinite day excludes the night and pleasures will banish pain. This is referring to the eschatological kingdom of the Messiah. How about this one? Uh, Psalm 97, verses 1 through 2. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds, thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of His throne. This is all going to be very, 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 very important to, to Hebrews in a minute. Now, look at Jeremiah chapter 23. You want to talk about looking at the Bible as Christian Scripture. This is all Christology from the Old Testament. It's incredible. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Isn't that amazing? In fulfillment of Psalm 72, verse 1. And he will reign as a king. He will act wisely. He will do justly and righteousness in the land and bring righteousness to the land. Boy, don't we need that right now. It says, in his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. All of these passages. And secondly, look at the second title. He is not just king of righteousness, but he is also king of Salem, which, yes, is the historical note, king of Jerusalem, but even more than that, king of Salem, the text says, which is king of peace, because Salem is where we get the word peace. Peace is also a very common messianic title. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9, for some more prophetic theology about Jesus and His, and his righteous peace-imparting reign. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, you know this passage, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, which literally can be translated in the Hebrew, Father of Eternity, and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. You see that? No end of peace. So Jesus ushering in a kingdom that will have no end of peace. What a coveted, coveted virtue, right? But no one will have this man to reign over them in order to realize that virtue. Our world needs peace. Our world, I mean, right now, our world is in such a hostile state. I mean, do you see what's going on in Greece at the moment? The instability of the banking system. Do you see what China is doing? Building artificial islands in the middle of the ocean. Artificial islands, folks, in the middle of the ocean so that they can land their jets and their military and to, and to build a military compound in the middle of the ocean on an artificial island. <laughs> yeah, the world needs peace right about now. It's extremely unstable. But we will have no peace without the Prince of Peace. The world will know no peace. Matter, matter of fact, the Bible says God will have the nations in derision because they will not have this man to rule over them. He goes on. He says, On the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will be established, in other words, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There will be no earthly government. There will be no united nations that will, end, that will usher in lasting peace. The only way that that will ever happen is through the zeal of the Lord. 
God will have to do it. And this is so important. Why? If you're back in Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. You remember now how Hebrews began. Hebrews began by making these assertions, by attributing to Jesus the throne of David. You remember? Have you lost sight of it? Because this is all organically connected. Because he says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, But of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you have hated lawlessness. That's why Jesus' reign will not do in this world. That's why Jesus' moral government won't do in this present evil age. Because He hates lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, he has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your contemporaries. That's amazing. Now, let me move on. Moving away from this encounter with Abraham and these descriptions to the essence of what the argument of Hebrews is trying to get at. I've got news for you. If you came here today wondering, who's Melchizedek? Is it Jesus? Which way is he going to go with that? Well, I definitely believe he is not Jesus Christ um, because the relationship is analogous. It is not uh, a one-to-one correspondence or, or else the analogy means nothing. Not only that, but also we are told that Melchizedek is a historical individual. I do not believe that Christophanies work in that way. Jesus did not come almost in a pre-incarnation, dwelt historically at another time frame in Jerusalem over people in a village somewhere, and that that was Jesus Christ. No, no. Um, I respectfully disagree with the position that tries to identify Melchizedek as Jesus Christ. No, he is not Jesus Christ, but he is made like the Son of God. Or else we miss the whole emphasis of the analogy. He is made like the Son of God in many, many respects, and in this respect above all other respects. That is the third point, and that is the perpetual priesthood of Melchizedek. That is really the thing here. Look with me at verse 3. He says that he, this, this king of peace, is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, and that's where people think, well, you can't say this about anybody else unless we're talking about someone who is divine. And I would say, no, there is a way to talk like this, and the reason he's talking like this is for a very specific purpose, and it's actually an old Hebraic hermeneutic which was known as an argument from silence, that what is not said and what is not known of the person is precisely the point of the argument. He uses the silence of Melchizedek to bolster his argument now about Jesus Christ. The Jews operated, and you can see evidence of them using that hermeneutic, but, but here it is the perpetual nature of the priesthood And that's what we need to see. The focus of Melchizedek is not attempting to unravel, therefore, this enigmatic figure, but to connect him to Christ and to contrast him to Christ as one lesser to the greater. The titles are not developed here, meaning the author is not getting into what does it mean for him to have no mother, no father, no, 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 no beginning of days, end of life. What do those things mean? He doesn't even develop that. The emphasis is on the perpetual nature of his priesthood. Hebrews also shows us just how redemptive historical the Bible really is here. Um, what is amazing, what is so amazing about Melchizedek is that the next time that you find a reference to Melchizedek, this one who has no father, had no mother, had no genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, at least as far as Scripture is concerned. Why is that important? It is important, my dear friends, because, as I just stated, according to priesthood theology, you must have your genealogy traced back, right? But his priesthood doesn't 
It doesn't run that way. That's not the way that it works. It's not organized. It is not, it is not established on the basis of genealogical record. It is established on the basis of God's sovereignty and God's divine design. Now, the other place that you find this quote, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 110. I think last week I told folks, I shortened my sermons, you know, We're going to throw that out the window today. Psalm 110 is the next time that you find a reference to Melchizedek. That, to me, is significant. Why? Because Genesis chapter 14, boom, Melchizedek is on the scene. And you are staggered by this person. There is no one greater in redemptive history than Abraham. Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the chosen nation. And then, out of nowhere, boom, you see him bowing down, as it were, submitting, as it were, tithing to this one, Melchizedek. And then the word of God literally stays in virtual silence for how long? One thousand years. A thousand years go by and not a word about Melchizedek until Psalm 110. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18 and following, we are told part of the duty of the king was to write out a copy of the, of the law He's to write it out by hand so that he can meditate and go over it for the rest of his life. Meditating Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and go over and over and over it. David comes on the scene, and he's a man after God's own heart. And we know that David serves a similar purpose to Melchizedek. That just like Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Jesus as priest, David is a foreshadowing as Jesus as king. And now you have the king meditating on the law of the Lord and remembering what happened to Melchizedek. And he says, look with me now, in Psalm, uh, Psalm 110, <clears throat> I want to begin in verse 1 just for the sake of context here. In Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, why is that significant? Because it is quoted in Hebrews time and time again. And we got that. That is a reference to David, the type of Christ, the king. And then David says, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. In other words, this king will be refreshed by the people. They will be like dew. They will gladly, by regenerate heart, freely give themselves to the allegiance of the king. And then he says another amazing thing. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek comes back into focus for a thousand years, and it is another thousand years before the New Testament picks it back up in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, and says, priest and king, we got him. His name is Jesus. 
It took all this time for us to unravel this and to wrap our mind around this, that God would have a, not just a king, but a priest king. Not just a priest, but a priest king. And how do these two offices meet together? They meet together in the wonderful person of Jesus Christ. How do I encourage you today, brothers and sisters? I encourage you this way. You have a priest king. That's your savior. And because he is a king, he reigns in righteousness. Because he is a king, his kingdom will have no end. Because he is a king, the kingdoms of this world will never overthrow his kingdom. And because he is a priest, your sin will not be imputed to you under his government. You will not be punished as you deserve. Because as your priest, he also sacrificed himself for you. He took off the mantle, if you would. He, he, it's, I don't want to, that's almost blasphemous. He, he not only has the mantle of a king, he also has the mantle of a priest. And he officiates in the sanctuary of God in heaven where he represents you by name. He represents you by name. And he says, he says, not only am I going to rule and reign over this person, I am also going to suffer for them, die for them, make propitiation for them, represent them in, before God in the things pertaining to God. I am going to be his representative as his priest. And then after I've been his representative as a priest, I'm going to rule and reign over him as his king. And it only took 2,000 years of redemptive history for Hebrews 7, to emerge at the fullness of the time so that we know there is someone far more interesting than Melchizedek. It's Jesus Christ. Don't waste your time trying to unlock Melchizedek. Spend your years meditating on Jesus Christ. Spend your life, waste your life, Sweetly weep your life away at the foot of his cross, trying to fathom the unfathomable riches of our King Priest, Jesus Christ. Father, we need representation. And one thing that is clear to us right now is that we are sinners. And as sinners, we crave forgiveness. And as forgiven sinners, we crave a righteous country. We crave a, a country wherein righteousness dwells, where your glory will cover the world like the water covers the sea. And we are so grateful for our priest king who has come to show us marvelous things. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for revealing to us the mystery that was hidden in ages past, but now has been revealed through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us now to treasure him more than ever to say with Paul that the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ allows me to consider everything else as rubbish. God, we need that hope. And we need that, we need that kind of worship. Purify us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.